welcome to When Women Speak Stories Worth Telling, a series of interviews with ordinary, extraordinary women sharing their stories, including answering three questions on something that inspired, a game-changing moment, and what the words When Women Speak say to them. Stories don't define who you are or determine the future, and yet they paint a vivid landscape of the world through a particular lens. That view can change in an instant, and there's something powerful in sharing our stories, learning and unlearning together, and setting them free, stripping us back to the essence of who we are. Who would you be without your story? Hello, Sarah J. Sanderson here, your host of When Women Speak, Stories Worth Telling. In this episode, we are joined by intuitive coach Sarah Priestley, who's also a guide in our exploration of true nature, a poet and mother to four cats, who you'll most likely hear in the background. A takeaway from hearing Sarah speak is to enjoy life as it appears. She also speaks on the usefulness of knowing your human design, what Lenormand cards are and how they can support you to talk to yourself at a level where conditioning doesn't apply. Plus, we hear Sarah's take on storytelling and why sometimes it's not appropriate to tell everyone your business. Sarah suggests a question you could ask yourself, is telling this story advancing my freedom or humanity? There's so much wisdom and grace throughout this enlightening conversation and any comments you have are most welcome either via our Facebook page or group or via email. All the links to get in touch are on the show notes and links to connect with Sarah Priestley are also on this episode's show notes. Hello and welcome to another episode of Stories Worth Telling. I'm joined by Sarah Priestley who I have known for, oh goodness, probably three years now and um I love everything about her (laughs) quite frankly (laughs) I I I've learned so much over the three years from Sarah Sarah um puts out the most gorgeous posts on Facebook and had the the privilege of of several conversations led by Sarah as well and there's always so much wisdom in what is shared and mm, I just yeah I I can't thank Sarah enough for all that she's given to me and that she's sharing publicly with people as well so thank you Sarah and thank you so much for joining us today. Hello and I apologize for the cats there appears to be three separate fights going on at the same time but they'll um, (laughs) hopefully settle um <laughs> it's just the way it goes in this household um yeah there we go I am first and foremost the cat's mother apparently and why not <laughs> have you ever had any other pets uh I grew up with a dog and I briefly had a budgie but it was it was a very unhealthy budgie um it didn't last very long oh that's <laughs> I, I had a long a dog long term right right through right from before I started school right through to after I graduated from a master's. Mm. And what was that relationship like? Oh, that dog. Oh, he was like my best friend when I went through puberty and you know like the pain of coming to terms with periods. He was he was the one who sat with me on my bed at night while I was wide awake and nobody else cared yeah he he was a grand old thing he was a mixture of everything and a few extras Mm. 
<laughs> you know, a proper proper farm dog meets random street dog. Way too clever. No sense of obedience. Yeah, he and I have got quite a lot in common. <laughs> yes, I, I'm, I'm enjoying. I'm enjoying hearing that that synchronicity between you and your and your dog. Gorgeous. <laughs> um. So one of the questions I would like to ask you um is around so this podcast series is called stories worth telling and I'm curious of your take on telling stories um what could you share on on the on the idea of telling stories sharing stories well you know there's two really different ways of telling stories one is your own story that you want to tell because it kind of needs to be out there like for your own benefit for your own sanity even to tell the story so it isn't a secret and I've been experimenting over the last few weeks with tiny kind of prose poems in that genre of not necessarily my stories although some of them are called giving voice because it feels like there's a lot of stories that stay secret and often for good reasons because of the impact they'd have on friends and family and wider world. But I think a lot of us have those little stories that we've never really told, but deserve to be spoken. So the last one I wrote was, it suddenly just popped into my head. I remembered, a this is taking you back, Microsoft Windows 95 resellers conference, for which one of my colleagues had somehow managed to get three tickets for us, even though we weren't actually resellers. We just used the product, but we were early adopters of the products. And somehow ending up having been sort of separated from the group by a much older man, who was the first time I'd heard my wife doesn't understand me. And even back then, a picture flashed into my head of what his wife would look like and the utter knowing that she did understand and she understood all too well. And then somehow my 25 year old friend and colleague, not only persuading one coach to wait for me to go back to our hotel, but getting three coach loads to wait and for people of all the coaches to search the conference venue to find me because he refused to let anybody leave till I left. And it, when that story came up, it's like, that's a story that can be told, partly for my benefit, because it's probably never been told, but it slides into the second version of a story, which is the universal story. You know, the fairy tale, the fable, the parable, which is a personal story that's not just being told for the sake of unburdening, but is being told because of the resonance with other people. And I guess partly my, my nature is a storyteller. A fundamental part of my design is to tell stories, but to universalize. So when I tell those stories, I'm not first and foremost unburdening something that bothers me. It's like, I know other people will hear that and they'll say, oh, I remember a time when I, like it'll have a personal meaning for them that's nothing to do with my original story, but the resonance of, of that expectation on you or that weight or that or even of the 
one of those tracts of friendship. And so some of my stories are completely fantastical, but they also have the same resonance. They may be further away from the Giving Voice series, but they, I think that those are the two sides of the story. And a story is great because a story entraps and takes you with it. And a, a, a storyteller with integrity will take you towards your own wholeness, never away from it, will take you further forward in a positive way, allow you to unburden yourself, allow you to recognize yourself more fully. Those same talents can be misused. And we probably all see on our global political spectrum, storytellers who use stories to manipulate and control. So there's a responsibility with storytelling, whether it's our own story, where the responsibility is appropriateness, is respect for the hearer, because some stories don't need to be told. Some stories are just privately acknowledged and let go, or respect for the wider population in, in where we're leading them with the story we tell. Mm, I love that description so much. And I, um, could you just say, a bit, there's a few things I wanted to, to pull out of that, but firstly, could you just say anything more on the stories that don't need to be told? I'm quite just curious just for a, a little bit more on what you, what you see in that. There's, there's a tendency in the personal development world when that development is in order to get to happiness, which, which demands not only that you speak your truth, but kind of like you, there's almost a verbal diarrhea element to it and that other people need to hear it. Some of our stories, like I'm trying to, I can't even think of an example. I wish I could, because my mind's just gone blank. But there's things that have happened in our lives that are, where there's no telling lots of people is going to not reduce the burden of them. Telling lots of people is actually us reinforcing our own victimhood. And when it's that kind of story, we, we tell it to ourselves quietly. We tell it to the trees or the birds or the cats and and we acknowledge that there's been a benefit to us in holding on to that story. It's not been just baggage that's been put on us. It's been something we've picked up and something we've kind of looked after and polished and nurtured and grown. And then that, that honesty of I've held on to this because of that benefit, the benefit that other people have kind of said, oh, poor, poor, poor you, no, don't you worry about, it's okay. Oh, of course, you're never going to have a good life if that happened when you're a kid. And so the stories we've kind of used to fortify something that actually does not serve us or anyone else. And so when we when we find those stories, we can acknowledge what we gained from them, even though they looked like they were just a story of, of something horrible that happened or something amazing that happened. And we've... I remember going to a wedding of an old college friend and one of the guys was like, 
still talking about the half marathon he ran when he was 17 and we were all well past 30 at that point you know sometimes we hold on to stuff almost like trying to set something in stone where life and emotions flow and so I think that's what I mean is the stories that don't need to be told are the ones that kind of have to be rewilded there's a we can have our own ceremony you know the, the sort of story where I don't know if somebody's had a really, really bad relationship and there's been a lot of shit, then they probably want to tell the story. But the best place to tell the story to is a letter that again gets burnt in a little ceremony. Like it puts it behind because there's a lot of times when we think that another person needs to hear our point of view and they don't. It's not. We, we kind of forget that there's an overall thing in storytelling, which is freedom, a movement towards greater freedom for us and for others. And if our freedom curtails somebody else's authentic, honest freedom, then we're doing a disservice. And it so then it becomes almost a weapon. Oh, well, I'm only saying what I think. I'm only saying my truth. You know, I'm, I'm being honest. And and we forget that the underlying motivation is is this is this advancing my freedom, my expression, is this advancing humanity, or is this just dragging everybody down? And you can tell a a story of really toxic events in a way that does bring greater freedom to ourselves and those who hear it and you can tell really positive stories in a way that drags everybody down and once you sort of are aware of that you start to see where where somebody doesn't know their own wholeness and is is trying to acquire it through the story mm. oh yeah <laughs> I've I've read some of those stories. <laughs> I've probably I'm I'm sure I've written many as well. <laughs> but yeah, I but I I do notice them in certain um posts on like Facebook and things like that. And um a couple of things that you you mentioned when you were first first talking about storytelling um was poetry. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about your um, experience journey with poetry. And then also you mentioned my design. Um, so um, just elaborating a little bit on that as well, whichever way you want to go speak to first, up to you. Oh, poetry is nothing special. Poetry is almost like the story without all the narrative. It, it's... Um, it's kind of like once you've written the story and then you take out all the stuff that doesn't need to be said, what's left. And I'm not a, I'm not a classic poet in any sense. I, I sometimes follow a meter, but as my mother says, they don't rhyme and they're not funny and she doesn't see the point. She does, however, like Pam Ayres and limericks. So, you know, there's hope for us all. Um, so I do occasionally follow a meter. I particularly like haiku um, or, or a kind of iambic pentameter, kind of a boom, 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 boom. But a lot of the time it's more prose, but it's got that flow and it's got that slight fantasy element and the 
disjointedness that is poetry rather than pure story. But I think that for all of us, that's quite good because there's a freedom of expression, whether it's poetry in prose looking form or poetry in a very structured classical sonnet, it doesn't really matter. It's the the freedom of expression, I guess. that That's what I like about poetry. And again, poetry is a wonderful way of sort of sneaking past people's intellectual defences and and touching them places they didn't know were were vulnerable. So that that's what I like about poetry. And then I said my design is of a storyteller. And obviously I'm referring to human design, which isn't a particularly ancient system, but it draws on ancient systems. It draws on astrology, it draws on I Ching, it draws on the Kabbalah, it draws on chakras and a few other things. And the wonderful thing about human design is the more people I talk to about it, the more people start to recognize that things they thought were character flaws are actually attributes. And if they, and I think that that, that's the, that's what I love about it. And it's not the only thing I use in a lot of ways because in general, part of understanding wholeness is to understand ourselves in the world. And anything that helps us reflect on who we are in the world so that we become the best version of ourselves and not the, the kind of the worst version of ourself is good because when we're the best version of ourself, we're happy and we spread happiness. And, and that's, that's always, I always go back to a, where, where are we going? And people, when they see their design and they see that pretty little chart and they start to delve into it holistically. They're not reading the free reports that they can get from a myriad of different websites that go through lots of little things in separate paragraphs. They're starting to see the, the way it comes together. And when it comes together, you get a very different picture from when you look at separate little bits. And again, we can use any system to put ourselves in boxes. And I see people doing that all the time. But when I look at my design holistically, I have a design of the person who wants to start everything from scratch, break everything, put it back together, universalize it and tell it and tell it in a way that is resonates with people. And that doesn't come from one thing that comes from all kinds of different aspects. And if we just looked at the individual things, we might not learn that. So I spend quite a lot of time now talking to people about how they make decisions and why they might not feel like they're in balance with themselves. And, and then we look beyond that. And I think one of the things that really helps me is that early on when I started looking at human design, somebody said to me, it's like you were in a box and the instructions for getting out of it were on the outside. And when somebody talks to you about your human design, they're giving you the instructions to get out of the box. So just like stories, we can use them to limit and constrain, or we can use them to open everybody up to a greater freedom. And because we all carry subconscious traits that we'll, we'll only ever see by their impact. We'll never actually kind of directly see them. We'll see them by the consequences. It's even more useful to have 
those subconscious traits written down for us so that we can get better and better at acknowledging the consequences and that it is us. It's not that we've been ridiculously unlucky in 27 different relationships. Actually, we've brought this thing because of a particular unacknowledged sense of need or unfulfillment in us or just a really bad ability to associate with the right people. I've definitely found a lot of um, usefulness in knowing my human design. That is, that is for sure. <laughs> yeah, a lot. It's been, and like you say, it was in having a more detailed, holistic look at my human design as opposed to just the broad brush general, um, because it's like four, said four main types. One, um, yeah. depending who you talk to there are four or five so I kind of call them four and a half <laughs> four, there is a there's a type called a reflector and they're really rare they're the people who are just there to really reflect stuff back to people and they're very very rare then there are projectors who are our project managers our community builders our HR people our recruiters they're, they are brilliant at bringing people, the right people together. And then we have our generators who are fantastic at doing stuff, but they work really well with somebody who inspires them. The person who like turns the key that starts the engine and they're the manifestors. They, the manifestor turns the key, the generator does the work and the projector makes sure that their team has got those features amongst it. And then the, the, half is the manifesting generator who is a a worker who is a self-starter and a lot of people mistakenly want to be a manifesting generator now I am one so obviously I can understand why you'd want to be because it's the best (laughs) actually when I say that it's tongue-in-cheek but everybody should fall in love with their own design everybody should see the perfection of who they are in the world and the wholeness of it and work with it to the greater good. And honestly, one of my best friends and I have got a, on the surface, if you just did our basic charts, you'd go, oh, they're both manifesting generators and they're both three fives. So they both love to break stuff, understand it from the beginning, build it up and universalize it. We're totally different. <coughs> in many, many, many ways. Just as an example, one of the most important things is for people, particularly now, particularly the way the world's going, is for people to understand their emotional patterns. And there's not one emotional pattern. And so many, I guess it's natural, so many self-help systems try to tell us there's one way to feel good, one way to be happy, one way to work. And they forget that we're unique we're all unique expressions of life and when you start to look at different emotional patterns some of us have a pattern that kind of builds in energy and positive feelings to a point where we're super efficient super productive super happy and then it crashes Mm. that's not wrong and when somebody who has that pattern plans 
not to try to be steady and stable and ordinary and normal, but plans to do everything in a mad rush once every two weeks or once every month. And then to spend three days on the sofa or taking long walks or salt baths. They're going to achieve more in their month than if they tried to be really steady through the whole month. That's only one type of pattern. There are other people who have a pretty regular chemical pattern of highs and lows in a wave. And the more they see that, the more they don't grasp the highs or try to grasp the lows, the more that wave moves through and becomes actually quite inspirational. Uh, I don't have particularly highs in that sense, but most of my writing often comes from the lower moods, not the higher ones. Oddly, a lot of the poetry and stories. And then there are people who have, uh, like me, a very steady, stable emotional pattern with two exceptions. One is that the people near us that we love can really, really, really hurt us really badly. And if anybody appears to be threatening that little gang that we really love, we can go off the deep end. And when we do, it's not really nice for anybody. But if we recognise that tendency in us, we can at least try not to make sh- try to make sure that nobody gets hurt when it's being expressed. So we we take that energy and we actually funnel it and direct it and make it a positive influence. And that, that's a huge learning for anybody. But then there's another category of people who are going to be much more influenced by other people's emotions than their own. They don't actually have a very reliable emotional pattern. So they're going to respond to whoever they're around, whoever they associate with, even I think the videos they watch or the books they read. And the more we, we recognise those different patterns, the more we start to see Well, if I'm really influenced by other people's patterns, I've either got to get quite good at that old fashioned word boundaries or I've got to spend more time with the people who are going to lift my emotions up, not bring them down. Mm, Yeah, I I think that is so key to not seeing how we um, how how we're living as wrong um, and. I think you already mentioned it, like almost trying to be something that you're not. I mean, I, I know I, before I knew about human design, I was trying to be a manifesting generator and I was buying course after course after course to learn how, you know, and trying to be exactly like these people that were saying, just do this, this 10 step plan, just follow this formula, this strategy. Um, and each time one didn't work, I'd move to the next, then invest in the next, in the next, until the whole house of cards just collapsed. And then I was, and then I discovered human design and discovered that I'm a self-projected, self-projected projector. I think that's how you say it. And it just, yeah, work, working in a completely different way to what I'd been trying to do. And initially feeling gutted. <laughs> I want to be a manifesting generator and then realizing that oh no because when like you were saying about a projector is the project manager is the builder of communities that inspires me like hearing you say those words I'm like oh yes yummy 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 um 
that is my natural tendency that's what I want to be a connector I want to bring people to the people together I you know I've always done that so yeah I just get excited hearing about human design because I just feel that we so easily um, can want to be like other people in terms of what we see is like oh that's how you should do it um, so I want to do it that way or yeah we kind of make ourselves wrong for how we behave um how we want to approach how we naturally approach things like I would definitely label myself as lazy um leaving things to the last minute <laughs> um so yeah I love 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 everything you've shared there and if anybody wants to know more about that um at the end we'll make sure Sarah that we share what how what you offer um because I think it's yeah incredible yeah you know that when you said you get inspired that's the perfect thing because a projector will get their energy from having the right people around them so a projector who is working appropriately for their design and when I say appropriately I mean basically they're going to be happier they're going to have the right people around them who have got a different type of energy and those people are going to inspire them and encourage them and give them the give them the motivation and the energy to do what is there to be done. So a projector who isn't embracing their design and is trying to be a manifesting generator, as that example, is going to be a little bit like, they're going to go two ways. They're either going to just burn out and turn in on themselves and beat themselves up and blame themselves and hit themselves over the head repeatedly with the manifesting generator hammer until they don't know what to do. Or they're going to turn into a bit of a vampire and they're going to leech off other people's energies. And they're basically going to, you know, pick a person, use their energy, discard them, pick another person, use their energy, discard them. So we, we very much see how the same tendency has got like a, they call it a self and a not self. And I love that because Mm. there's no other self in the conversation it's like you're either you or you're trying to be not you and when you're Mm. trying to not be you it's not just you that suffers it's generally quite a lot of other people so um the more we see that sorry we've got a cat involved in the situation now um (laughs) the more we see that so I think you picked exactly right is like suddenly it's like oh that's actually a really relevant role in society it's really important especially now especially as as we're moving towards that much more community supportive environment to have the people who build the communities who have the people who understand roles who have the people who who can kind of take the overview it's really important and it should inspire you Mm, mm. so it's great that it does yes it is (laughs) okay we've not asked any of our three podcast questions actually yet so (laughs) (laughs) so I'm going to ask one of them now which is what have you come to realize that could be described as a game changer what did I come to have I come to realize that could be described as a game changer I think when I saw that 
the entire purpose of life was moving towards this, I call it a state of grace, which sounds a bit religious, but it, it's just a word for, for freedom, love, abundance, joy, compassion, or some combination of those being your basic experience of life, whether it's in the background or the foreground, whether you get thrown off it and come back to it, but seeing that as a goal in and of itself and then realizing that this applies to anybody. You, you can be terminally ill and sitting in a hospital and you can be happy in that circumstance. You can be out conquering mountains and you can be at peace. Like the, the understanding that this is universal, that if everybody was just looking first to themselves Am I in alignment with myself at every level of who I know myself to be? Do I know who I am? They're going to, in general, be happier and spread that happiness. And everything else that we've ever wanted is a proxy for that. We make up so many roles. Oh, no, but you can be happy if you're making this much money. You can be happy if your children are healthy. You're, you can be happy so long as you've had children. You can be happy so long as you've got the partner. You, you can be happy so long as you've left that one. You could, it's always deferred. And these, I call them proxies for happiness now. It's like, well, people are so, get so set, and I've done it as well, on pursuing something that will make me happy as opposed to looking first to happiness and then seeing that quite often chasing the thing is a distraction and is taking them further away and therefore making them unhappy and therefore probably spreading unhappiness all around them in one way or another. And even somebody who's saying the right stuff and doing the right stuff, when it's not, when it's coming from a, I need this or I'm not going to be okay. It doesn't come across well. It, it, it resonates with exactly the wrong people. It resonates with the people who are so deep in their own suffering, they don't know what's good for them anymore. And they're naturally drawn to other people who are also basically resonating with suffering. Mm. What came to mind was that, um, that phrase, which is the, the name of um, a film with Will Smith, The, the Pursuit of Happiness. And I think, I think that came to me when you were saying about um, this defer, defer, deferring of happiness, like it's out, it's out there. Um, and that idea of the pursuit of happiness, um, when I first sort of saw that line, it, it looked like um, having to go off and find it somewhere else. Um, I can't, to be fair, I can't even remember, I know what the film's about, but I can't even remember, I can't remember the ins and outs of it but um um there does seem to be a grace in first and foremost seeing happiness is well maybe just that happiness is <laughs> like those old cartoons that said love is dot 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 and honestly like the that recognition in and of itself is is frequently the thing that makes people happiest. That there doesn't need to be anything after the is, happiness is, love is, freedom is, abundance is, compassion is. And we will express it in a myriad of different ways. There's a small group of people 
who who come to a place where they've got no sense of self at all, no sense of agency, no sense of of doing, no sense of anything. And honestly, not many people want to live like that. Most people want to, because the, the downside of that is they tend to withdraw a little bit from life. They tend to not be that nice to be around. They're the one category of really happy people who do not spread happiness. They tend to actually spread the opposite, which is why traditionally those people would have been in religious communities of other people who felt exactly the same because together they're fine because they don't mind. Mm. When they're with people who are more engaged in life, more sense of agency and flow, but not in a, a, a personal way, but in a this is how life is appearing to life and therefore this is how I will live it way. The, the people with no sense of agency and no sense of self can actually be quite unpleasant to be around because they, it's like they suck for other the people who don't live like that. There can be a sense they suck the joy out of it. And when we try to live like that, if we think by accident, that's how we should live. It's pretty disastrous because we live in a state of denial. And if we live in a state of denial about our emotional flow and our ambitions, then we're not going to be happy. But that's a very small category. But uh, other than that, some people live in a this flow state where there's one emotion and it's that wonderful mix of all the, all the pretty emotions. And some people live in a, a much more pragmatic in and out of different emotional states. And, but there's in all of those and in all the unique expressions, the, there's a consistency which is a, a basic state of well-being in the background all the time even in big situations even in little situations uh yeah mm, yeah i i love what you're sharing there and i've definitely noticed some people who yeah who you could certainly say they're happy within themselves, but there's almost, yeah, it's, there's a, a dull, I don't know, like a, you know, the word that's coming to me is like a, a, a dullness. It's almost like I can sometimes find myself just sighing or eye rolling a little bit. <laughs> and I genuinely think that it's a very classic way of living but it used to belong in religious communities, mm. in enclosed communities. And if you're, because, sorry, one cat is now shouting at all the other cats, <laughs> which is not going to go well. Um, there's going to be a fight. Um, when you're living like that, social, I don't know, consideration just drops away because for the people in those groups, the, the absence of any separate self is so apparent. They kind of forget that they can say and do stuff that's just going to grate or upset or hurt, which is why I think it was brilliant in communities where everybody was the same. Yeah. Because yes. they were all cool with it and it wasn't, it wasn't inappropriate anymore. But when it's one person in a community of other people, it, it can be, it can come across as anything from merely insensitive to actively cruel. And that's not the, I know that's not the intention, but that's how it comes across. 
So I think when somebody is living like that, just having that tiny recognition that not everybody feels the same or sees the same and not everybody needs to. Mm. And we come to a much greater understanding of the, the depth and breadth of this experience of happiness. And we stop trying to insist that it has to be one way. Yes. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So like, you know, and I think when people do add the, an answer to the dot, 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 happiness is, um, monetary wealth or happiness is the perfect relationship happiness is um looking a certain way that's when yeah they're they're kind of these those ideas almost breed unhappiness for somebody who feels that oh right I'm not going to be happy unless I've got this or or that or or the other I feel I'm more in a pursuit of alignment and I don't even know if pursuit's the right word but I can see that that happiness just gets amplified when there's alignment. So I don't need to look, I don't need to search for happiness. That is, but there's something around alignment that does seem to um, be available or, or not available, if that makes sense. Am I making any sense? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because the trouble is that we're going to talk about it like the pursuit of alignment. But what we really mean is the recognition of the activities that aren't. And mm. that's not a pursuit. That's just a mixture of instinct and inspiration, which kind of come together to make intuition. We go, oh, my goodness, if I just stopped, I don't know, staying up past midnight every day doing stuff that doesn't need to be done I would start each morning feeling better but it's it can be at mm. that most basic level or it can be oh but if I use this that would just solve this problem or why is that a problem is it my job is it my job to fix that because we can we can frequently and I think women are particularly good slash bad at this <laughs> is we can frequently take on the need to fix the world rather than the understanding that our happiness is our gift to the world or oh, somehow we think that by fixing everybody else we'll eventually be happy because we'll have kind of proved our worth in some way and it's very very difficult to just say no my happiness first, not in a commercial, materialistic way, but my basic, fundamental, deep down sense of happiness is my gift to the world. It's a parent's gift to their children. Oh, it's yes. a boss's gift to their team. It's a teacher's gift to their students. Just that first. And then we see oh, look, that person's going through some real emotional turmoil, but it's not my job to fix it. It's not my job to tell them that this is what's happening. It's not my job to try to make it better. My job is to not take it personally. My job is to not take on their distress as though it were my own and then require them to be different in order for me to be okay. My job in this situation is to to love and be open and that's all pickle <laughs> you see 
I'm going to tell you a little story now. And the story is, I'm chasing him out of the room, basically. Um, a little pickle, what they call timid, semi-feral, is a tunneler. And he tunnels under the fence and out into freedom, liberty. And then he goes and fights big tomcats. And he's been caught twice now. And both times I have filled his tunnel in. But when he can't be a fighter, he likes to be a lover. And so he chirps and cheeps around our little girl cat. Um, Cause that urge in him, if it doesn't come out in fighting, comes out um, a different way. <laughs> there you go. Mm. And it's incredibly annoying. And eventually she slaps him around the face and tells him to sort off. <laughs> I really like that story. It reminds me of a quote that's, um, Carolyn Elliott uses a lot and I know um, Leanne Brooke Tyler uses a lot um, which is it's by Carl Jung until you make the unconscious conscious it will rule your life and you'll call it fate yeah what do you hear yeah. in that what do you hear in that Sarah it's incredibly difficult to make the subconscious conscious like I know Young really wanted to, and I know he tried really hard. I think we can make it visible in its impacts, in its secondary things. I think making the subconscious conscious is really difficult. So I can see what he means. It's like, if you understand you have this subconscious trait, even though you can't see it, and human design says to you, stop trying to see it, just accept you have it, because you keep seeing the impact it has. Mm. So if you are always approaching any relationship, not just romantic friendships, work and so on, with the same hidden need, you're going to see the impact of it. And you might never actually fully tap into that sense of need, but you'll see how it shows up in your thoughts and emotions. So you'll get better at, at realizing what's going on not but not actually ever fully making the subconscious conscious just actually making the subconscious like almost like a, a cleaner channel for want of a better word so that we we don't need to bring everything that is in the subconscious to the surface we're more just in that natural allowing ourselves back into alignment in the seeing the impact of things and putting down the baggage that is not ours in the reclaiming of power, the subconscious stops being a problem. Mm. And I think that's what Jung wanted more than anything is for the, the subconscious not to be a problem in life. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, it also, it reminds me of um, another thing that uh, I've heard Carolyn Elliott say, which is having is evidence of wanting. So there's, um, yeah, so what you're basically seeing, seeing is a reflection of what patterns that are running. Yeah, the way I often think of it is that we can get, we can accidentally very much slide into blaming, blaming the person for how their life is. But one of the things that is helpful is that if you use a phrase like thought created reality, the actual person, the body and mind are part of the thought. Mm. It's not the body and the mind that created the thought that created a reality that's outside of the body and mind. It's that the 
personality, the soul, if you like, created the mind and body that appears to live in a reality. And when we see it that way, there's no sense of victim blaming or, oh, look, that that person thought a wonderful reality because they've got a million dollars or mm-hmm. ten million dollars or a hundred million dollars in the bank. Like we 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 stop making it personal achievement or personal fault. And that I think is really, really important because as soon as we make it personal, we get into this state where we're blaming somebody for having being born into a poor family or born into an abusive situation or or born into a a life shortening illness and all of that it just doesn't feel very kind mm-hmm. yeah I hear you I hear you with that Sarah what have you what have you seen or heard that's inspired so this could be something recent or could be something from years and years and years ago so something you've seen or heard that's inspired in general terms first what inspires me is kindness that isn't predicated on a lie so we're not telling people about a tooth fairy or an easter bunny Uh, anything that's kind but honest and pointing to a truth always inspires me even if it's it's not my path. Um, and then the next thing that inspires me is fun, is enjoying it. So I have um, on and off relationship with um, dysphonia. So sometimes particular noises irritate me. In other words, sometimes I might look at my husband and like, do you have to breathe like that? It's that level of like a very, like somebody just moved, opened a curtain three rooms away and it rattles through my body. And I, you probably even saw it because we're talking on a video. My whole body went, oh, I like, and I could fight that and I could be unhappy with it or I could kind of enjoy that. Oh, what's the word? Perception. I could actually enjoy the fact that I do get that feeling, that it ripples through and then it's gone. So in the same way, I can enjoy getting grumpy. I'm on a program at the moment because I wanted to be part of a research project and there's quite a lot of things you have to do. And I was kind of okay with one and two and then three. But when it turned into seven things, I got a bit arsy. But I enjoy <laughs> that sense of, of like irritation. Um and so the way that way I've seen it, and this is a distraction from the answer to the question, but I'll come back probably. We can, when we start to see that certain things in life trigger us into being unhappy, distressed, frustrated, bitter, disappointed, aggressive even, when we see that there's two kind of directions. And one is to exclude those things from your life but you reduce your world, you create your world into something smaller. And then you suddenly find you're sitting alone in a white painted room with beautiful art on the wall and you're still feeling bitter, frustrated, disappointed and aggressive. And so all that curating did no good. And obviously the last nine months have kind of shown us that. A lot of people who thought they'd 
were in charge have had the rug pulled out from under their feet. The other way we do it is, yeah, sure, we we naturally move away from situations which are serving no good, but we also start to see, well, that trigger, I can deal with that at some point, whether I move away or towards it or whatever. First of all, I'm being triggered. That's me. I've brought something to this party. And then we explore it in the way that's appropriate for us. And for some people, it will be quite analytical and other people it will be like, I don't need to do that. Anything on that whole spectrum. And so we expand it. One of, one of my teachers at the moment calls it a peace palace. And it just means the, and I loved it because it, like it, it matched my feeling of this tiny curated safe environment. But he says, well, every time you expand your peace palace, of course you're going to come up against your rough edges. But imagine coming to a point in life where things didn't, most things didn't great because they're already within the peace mm. palace. But when we're going through these periods of expansion, that's where this dysphonia of mine comes up because it's one of my ways of experiencing my own rough edges. But as I expand, more and more stuff is okay, more and more stuff I can deal with it effectively and I can engage directly because that there's nothing there to trigger. And that is hugely more rewarding than excluding stuff that I don't want to see. I heard it on a podcast not so long ago. I didn't listen to much of it, um, but I promised somebody I'd listen. And I heard the phrase, I try not to think about the bad stuff because it upsets me. Uh, my my alternative actually is that when thoughts or feelings come up that I don't enjoy, if they don't flow through nicely, I say the word compost, sometimes out loud, which can get you treated like a mad woman, <laughs> but I say the word compost because it says the, the thing this thought or feeling is good for is compost. It's manure. It can help the roses grow. Great. It's like return it to the universe with love, compost. And it, it's a way of my system seeing that that particular habitual pattern is no longer required. It's like, okay, there's that thought, compost. Oh, there's that feeling, compost. It just, it keeps everything moving. And it says, it shows me that there's a value even in those thoughts and feelings. What's inspiring at me at the moment I'm, I'm doing a lot in the divination world and I see human design sort of sits on a boundary of that, but I'm, I'm really loving the tapping into, you could call it our superconscious if you like. Mm. So allowing the subconscious to be the clearest possible channel, because that's how our superconscious talks to us. And that ties back to classical psychology, you know, ego, id and super ego, all of that. And so just tapping into what is definitely already known, but isn't necessarily being seen by the conscious. Yeah. And that is uplifting. And it brings me into communities of people who are there to uplift each other, not bring each other down or show each other where they're wrong. And it, it interestingly, when I kind of stick my head above the parapet in that, you find a lot of people thought they were by themselves. They thought they were doing this and it was a bit wrong and they shouldn't. And it's really interesting to see that when one person says, I'm doing this and it's fun. And uh, it's 
I'm happier and I'm spreading much more happiness in the world this way. Other people say, oh, yeah, I, I kind of like that too. And a community grows not through any clever selection, but just by kind of offering something. Here, here, here's something that I'm doing. If you're doing the same thing, come and play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, gorgeous. Um, do share a little bit more about uh, about what you've you've been creating because I know if I pronounce, oh, there's different ways of pronouncing it, but that you've been you've created a, a deck of um, oracle cards, but they're of uh, Lim- Lin- <laughs> Lenormand Lenormand cards. <laughs> Okay, Lenormand is, um, oh, it's probably a hundred-ish years old system from France, obviously, hence the name, based on Normandy, Um, but also German because of the way those countries have sort of worked in and out of each other over the years. It's based on original playing cards, but not a whole deck, which makes it easy because a lot of people, they get into Oracle cards and they they pick up something that's got beautiful art and 56 cards or 78 cards if it's tarot or, or something. And every card has got three pages in a book or if it's tarot, it's got a book to itself, each card, or it should have. And they look at the picture and then they read the book and they've again sort of delegated the power to somebody else. Lenormand has in essence about three or four core meanings that you put on a card and there's no depth of symbolism, which means that anybody can pick it up, shuffle, pull out three cards and they can look at the core meanings and they can tell a little story in one or two sentences from those three cards. And it's kind of immediate. It's there to, from the start. And it means that it's, it's something that people learn to, to kind of, they're not controlling a system, but they're learning something that liberates them. They're no longer relying on three books and everybody else's experience. They're like, actually, it's my superconscious not that other person who wrote that lovely book. And then we can still, I've got hundreds of things, decks of cards. We can use them and they add to what we know, but we're like, oh yeah, actually, like, I don't know, like here's three cards. Oh yeah. Now, now I see there's something a bit wrong with that contract. And I was thinking that. And then we look at the pictures on the cards or you, or we simply tell a story. We tell a story about a a little girl who went to the park and ran up and down amongst the trees and then looked at the fish in the pond. So they're, they're storytelling, they're parlor games. There's a game called game of hope, which is entirely based on this little deck of 36 cards, um, which has a, always has a name to reach the anchor stable happiness without being fixed. And the wonderful thing about it is there's just 36 cards. They all have a name, so they all have an image associated with them. The image can be anything you like, as long as it reflects the word. And and you're away. You're away reading your own intuition. You're away listening to your own inspiration. You're telling stories. You're, you're, you're seeing beneath the surface 
and talking to yourself at a level where conditioning doesn't apply. Fabulous. And these particular cards, so you have you've illustrated them all yourself as well. I yeah, I'm not quite sure how now I look at them because I have zero artistic talent. Um, but I I wanted to learn and my nature and my design is to break a system, look at it and then build it back up again in my own way. And every deck of cards I had, I was struggling to recognize the images immediately. And if you don't recognize the image immediately, you're looking at a picture and going, oh, what is that? And it was because they're all done by artists. And so when an artist has to draw a dog, they tend to draw a dog plus a man, plus a house, plus a garden, plus a tree. And then, unfortunately, in Lenormand, there is a card called house, there is a card called tree, there is a mm -hmm. card called garden, and there is a card called dog. And I'd be looking at it going, well, which one is it? Um, and when we, when I drew them, my whole intention was, what's the core meaning of this card plus the name? So, for example, fish is abundance, is flow. So a card with one fish on it doesn't say that to me it says mm. one fish <laughs> yeah. like, one fish isn't abundance like unless you're jesus possibly and even he needed um two fish didn't he <laughs> <laughs> to feed, the, feed the multitude so when i drew fish i i obviously i didn't draw lots of fish but i used photoshop to layer and layer and layer my image right. till i had mm -hmm. lots of fish and movement a sense of of, of movement so I used a lot of of photoshop techniques that um kind of blend colors so it's not flat color and even when you can't tell the colors are blended it gives a, a slight depth to it so I wanted the cards to immediately almost viscerally feel like their meaning um so for example rider is because of the timing of when the cards were produced, it's news from home, which takes a bit of time to get there. You know, when the horse rider put the message in his, his knapsack and set off from one town to another with, the, with those letters, it was going to take time. So mm. I wanted riders to immediately have that, that sense of movement and a kind of feeling of, of not yet. They're not quite here. Um, and the more I did that the more I realized I was drawing all of the pictures. So I drew all the pictures <laughs> and then I, I scanned them and then I edited them in Photoshop. And some of them were easy, like the heart. I drew a heart. It's got a couple of hearts. It's got a spiral. It, it's got a bit of a twist to it. It took five minutes. Some of them took me f a couple of days to get the layers and to clean it and until I was happy, yeah, this shows me what I want it to mean. And then I thought, oh, well, it's not that difficult. There's a local company that prints playing cards and you just upload your pictures and they send you back your cards mm. and they'll do as many as you want. And it's not cheap because it's a one-off job. I did it and I, li I really liked them and I started using them and people were saying, well, where did you get them? There, that's what the cards are meant to look like. And I was like, oh, I drew them. And so a few people said to me, well, if you if you sell them, I'll buy, I'll definitely buy some. So I went back to the same company and they do more professional print runs as well. And the beauty of that is they do them on this beautiful textured, like linen card. Mm. 
so mm. it feels nice it's a bridge card so it's got a bit of robustness to it for people like me who like to riffle shuffle because the noise is nice that's one of the noises I like um, <laughs> and people said yeah you know like we'd buy them if you produce them so I I got um a test run and I cleaned up all the editing errors that I'd made and the spelling mistakes because I'm I am not a speller by any stretch and then we ran out a print run of 100 because at that point I can sell them at a price which isn't exorbitant um, because it reduces down the company have been great they've been incredibly supportive and helpful to me and in 11 days I sold 55 decks which Mm -hmm. astounded me (laughs) (laughs) because I literally started drawing them out of that pig-headedness. I need a deck of cards that just represents the meaning. And when I look at it, I feel the meaning and nothing else. And because I'm a storyteller, I, I use them to tell stories all the time. I use them if people are talking to me, I pull in cards and the cards will reflect what that person's telling me. And then sometimes they'll tell me a story, but in the cards I get like a a cross and a cross is almost always grief. Unless you're talking super spiritual, where it might have a spiritual meaning, it normally means grief, but the person skipped over it. And then I'm like, oh, what's hurting you? And the tears are usually right under the surface and if the card wasn't there I might not have obviously I've picked up on the cues because that's why the card's there it's nothing fancier than that but it's like oh yeah that's what I was picking up on and the card saying do you know what you picked up on there and it, it gives us an opportunity to cut the niceties a little bit and say, <laughs> yeah. what's really going on <laughs> and when we and you know that I teach non-duality and we can get really stuck in a non-dual world oh it's one being it's one being it's one being but it's one being appearing as though many and knowing itself in relationship to apparent other so anytime we find that thing that takes us below the surface to a human to human connection that's a clearer knowing of self. It's a step towards knowing the wholeness that is and making it apparent in everyday life. And that that's happiness. Mm, yeah, definitely. Oh my goodness. What I would, what I would love for answering the final question then is to see what the, what the, what story the cards tell us, because the, the, the third question that we ask all podcast guests is what do the words when women speak say or mean so um let's (laughs) interesting um yeah what does when women speak mean let's see what we want to say today this is it's going to be as much as a surprise to me as to anybody else okay When women speak, it's a way of moving beyond troubles and becoming more fully themselves. Letter clouds person, which for me, when I drew, because Lenormand is 100 years old, it's got a kind of classic male, female. And that doesn't, it's not very accessible necessarily to people whose race, gender, sexuality 
doesn't conform to those cis heteronormal models. So I do a few extra people, not explicitly to represent any particular race or sexuality or anything like that, but just to add a little bit of variety. So this is saying when women speak, it's just about being more fully you, your way of moving beyond what is troubling you or weighing you down and of, of getting it out there, but primarily to become more you, to become more you in whatever way that makes sense and the way this is saying it's going to make most sense is that childlikeness that ease and grace and lightness and I know some people will talk about life as a play and kind of nothing matters but you know stuff happens in life and we're allowed to grieve and celebrate and a child will grieve and celebrate all kinds of things so this is about the ease and lightness and grace of of enjoying life as it appears to us and the relationships it throws up for us mm. wow <laughs> that's i would wholeheartedly agree with uh, with that that's definitely for for nicola and i as the co-founders of when women speak although we feel more like custodians of it that would definitely be at the heart of of what we we see when women speak to be so that's so that's gorgeous sarah how can people contact you and what you what do you offer um yeah obviously i'm going to put put details in the show notes but sometimes it's just useful for people just to to hear what what you offer, how they can contact you um, as part of the actual co- uh, podcast. Cool. Um, people can always find me on Facebook where there is a photo of me with makeup and hair done, which doesn't look much like me, but if it doesn't look much like me, that is me. Um, <laughs> so people can find me on my Facebook page, spelling my name the way it's spelt, which is always helpful, or on my website, which is my name. Um, those are the two places to find me. What do I do? I still talk about non-duality where people need help, but primarily integrating it into their life because a lot of people learn an intellectual understanding and it doesn't make them any happier. It makes them less happy because now they've trying to work out what the hell it means in everyday life because they don't know how to how to make sense of it. So I help people make sense of their growing intellectual non-dual understanding in a really grounded, holistic way. I talk to people about human design, but not so much in the, oh, you're a projector, so this means this, but looking at the totality of the design, it's kind of scrying almost, like a magic eye picture. I look into it till I fall into who the person is. And then we just talk about how they express themselves just like we've just talked about. Um, I do the same with card readings at various levels and various ways. And it's always and always and always, how do you move so that you're living in this state of grace, which means all emotions can flow, nothing's off the table. You're happy and peaceful and you are all joyful and you're spreading that in the world. And if from my perspective it, that that's what it's all about mm, wonderful 
Thank you so much for joining us today, Sarah. It's been an absolute pleasure. If you would like to find out more about When Women Speak and keep up to date with everything that's going on, then please join our mailing list over on the website, which is www.sgn.com, that stands for When Women Speak Global Network. 